From Alaska Team Media Institute, I'm Ada Bjorkman. This is Podcast in Place, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. For nearly two years now, we've been living through the COVID-19 pandemic. A century ago, the world was consumed by another deadly virus commonly known as the Spanish influenza. Spreading worldwide, mainly in 1918 and 1919, it is estimated that one-third of the world's population became infected with the virus. Approximately 50 million people died, and in the U.S., the death toll was around 675,000. For this episode, we're going to look back on how the pandemic affected Alaska. 1918, 1919, you're talking about 1 in 20 people in Alaska die. Most of that from the influenza. There are also a couple of other terrible things that happened in that time frame. Uh, soldiers are off who went off to World War I. Um, the Princess Sophia sank, which was the deadliest maritime disaster in Alaska history, killed over 300. Really one of the darkest periods in Alaska history. That is David Reamer, an Alaskan historian who has been researching this particular period of the state's history. Since the onset of COVID-19, he has written articles for the Anchorage Daily News about the Spanish influenza and other health crises throughout the years. ABME senior producer Quinn White spoke with Reamer about his research. He talks about how the virus affected urban and rural areas differently, how Alaskans responded to subsequent public health outbreaks, and the stark parallels to what we're all living through today. They spoke on January 26, 2022. So let's kind of go back in time to the 1918 pandemic. Can you kind of set the scene for me and tell me what Alaska was like at that time? We're talking still very rural, very disconnected from the rest of the world. Um, steamers, the railroad is still under construction. We're still a few years away from it being completed between Seward and Fairbanks. News took time to make it up here. Like the news of the end of the World War One happened in 1918 as well, November. And that took hours by telegraph even to reach Alaska. But at the same time, they couldn't avoid the influenza pandemic. And we call it the 1918 pandemic, really, it went longer than that. Um, I tend to call it 1918 to 19, but there's predecessors before that, and in many ways it never really left. It just continued to evolve and mutate. Yeah, I mean, this is what, like, over 30, almost 40 years before statehood? Yes. So, yeah, pretty, pretty desolate still. Yes, there, there aren't territorial police. There's only a few scattered marshals, minimal army presence, um, very little law enforcement. Um, Alcohol is illegal already. Um, as of 1918, the Bone Dry Act goes into effect. So alcohol, Alaska's dry for the minimal effect this had on day-to-day life. So I don't really know much about the Spanish flu at all. So how does that compare to, can maybe we could compare it to COVID-19? What are the symptoms like, transmissibility, mortality rates? Um, it was much deadlier. Um, I mean, globally as a pandemic, that's uh, the second worst pandemic in recorded human history after the Black Death, after the bubonic plague. Uh, estimates for around the world range from 50 to 100 million dead. Maybe a third to half of the world contracted it. It was just pervasive. It was part of life in every part of the world. Just talked about Alaska being, you know, sort of alone and apart and distant, but it could not avoid it. And really what you think of as a flu, but worse. I'm kind of surprised, you know, that um, like an estimated almost like 50% of everybody on earth got this disease. And this was before, I mean, you could fly from one side of the world to the other in a day, right? This is one reason why it also lasted for as long as it did. You get pockets of places that have been relatively safe, had avoided real outbreaks, and suddenly a boat would come in and it would flare up all over again. This happened in Alaska months after the peak. 
uh, to come back to like what the influenza is like, this is you're getting people would be wiped of their strength is something that they often talked about. It's strong people laid low, being unable to get out of bed, the fevers, the chills, the aching, the coughing, the vomiting, the diarrhea, just leaking from every orifice. That's no good. <laughs> no, it's unpleasant. Um, it's not a great way to go. So who were the people that were most vulnerable to succumbing to the Spanish flu? Uh, in Alaska, that would be Alaska natives. Uh, far majority of those that died in Alaska from the Spanish flu. Um, estimates range total deaths in Alaska during this time from the influenza is about 1,000 to 3,000, although we'll never know anywhere close to the real numbers, just as we'll never know you know, the true cost and lives from the global pandemic of it. But the far, far majority are Alaska natives, um, isolated, less able to get care, um, and also less, you know, a government that was less built to aid them. You know, we're talking villages were wiped out. Um, hardest hit was on the Seward Peninsula. Villages would just be emptied. You know, people who just sort of fell and couldn't get out, died of the exposure. Mothers falling to the influenza, but holding their babies who died from the exposure. And this is something people don't often put together is because the influenza had been so a visible, devastating impact upon the Seward Peninsula, you know, around Nome, around Wales, they, it was just vivid memory in people's mind when in 1925 the diphtheria um, outbreak happens in Nome, you know, leading to the serum run of Balto and Togo fame. One reason they were so pushed to respond to this, to, you know, risk their lives to get serum into town, is because they had seen, this was recent living memory for these peoples in these towns. Of what happened when disease could go unchecked? They had seen families destroyed in you know seemingly moments, strong people dead within a week. I think what's craziest about this is, I mean, you said that anywhere between a thousand and three thousand people died, but I mean, what was Alaska's population at this time? I mean, it was a lot lower than it is today, right? Oh, a lot less. Um, uh, 1920 population is 55,000. Oh, wow. So that's quite a bit. Yes. Um, 1918, 1919, you're talking about one in 20 people in Alaska die. Most of that from the influence. There are also a couple of other terrible things that happened in that time frame. Uh, soldiers are off who went off to World War I. Um, the Princess Sophia sank, which was the deadliest maritime disaster in Alaska history, killed over 300. Really one of the darkest periods in Alaska history. So when the Spanish flu came to Alaska, how did the people who lived here respond? Um, a lot like today, there was a, there was something of a territory-wide response, but like today, policy was much more local. The governor, Thomas Riggs, who was appointed as governor of Alaska, he did institute a, um, a travel limit. He had to get a health certificate that, you know, said that either you had been checked out by a doctor or that you had previously had the influenza and thus, you know, considered to be safe for the time being. You know, you needed this to be able to travel. Again, this was ignored in many places. Uh, people didn't, then and now people didn't like restrictions on their travel. But you have a lot of widely different, wildly different local responses. Um, in Anchorage, they went into a, a stark quarantine for the most of the month of November 1918. Uh, in Ketchikan, they had a rule for a while where you couldn't sit on stools next to one another in restaurants and bars. In Cordova, they kept all the longshoremen. They had to live apart from the rest of the town so that, you know, still do their job, but not infect the rest of the population. Now, they lived on the dock, I believe. 
uh, in Fairbanks, they fumigated the mail because you're, you're also dealing with a lot of, um, there was a large amount of misinformation. That's not going to surprise anyone familiar with now. Uh, There's a lot of fear. Some people went to extreme lengths. Some people did absolutely nothing. Uh, fumigating the mail, they thought this was, you know, this would keep them safe. So they would get the mail in, they would fumigate it, and they would have to wait a day or so. <laughs> oh, geez, that seemed, hmm. Uh, did that, I mean, did that work? Did that work? <laughs> well, the interesting thing is the areas that Alaska that suffered were coastal. The Seward Peninsula, Anchorage, you know, in as much as the Matsu. But the interior of Alaska really didn't have these outbreaks. Uh, I mean, you have, I mean, there were native villages in the interior that put armed guards on the way into town, into the villages, you know, turning people away. Um, some places you had to have like little badges, you know, buttons maybe with a piece of ribbon, you know, signed by a doctor to get into town. Steamers, if they had had someone infected on the steamer, would get turned away from some places, you know, forced to, you know, just sit off in the water. So I'm really curious to know how this disease affected urban areas like Anchorage compared to more rural areas. And like you just said, I read an article about it yesterday, too, about how um, towns like Shishmaref, for example, had this strict quarantine. They had guards around the town limits to enforce it. So maybe we can talk about what it looked like in urban areas versus like those villages and um, just the small town response versus the big city response. So what you see in Anchorage and Juneau, uh, Douglas, is they close down public events pool halls close, um, schools close. Anchorage was quarantined for most of November 1918. Uh, they stopped trains from running into town, um, which, you know, that was the lifeblood of a railroad town. And it's hard to say how much this helped because, you know, a large amount of people ignored the restrictions. A lot of, you know, many people complained to the governor about the restrictions. Um, I've gone deeper than some of the other reports counting up everyone I could find that died in Anchorage from influenza, flu-like symptoms at this time, and I came up with 28, and they all died in November. We're in a talking in a town of maybe 3,000 people. So Anchorage mainly kept it to no public gatherings. Um, for example, this is when World War I ended, but there were no parties. People couldn't go out and celebrate as they would have done. No dancing in the streets. They blew some whistles. They rang the bells at the school. People celebrated in their home in small little social groups. But there couldn't be the sort of like officials get out and give speeches to the public. Everybody celebrates many parades as there would have been. Juno went a bit farther and actually had a mask mandate. I've only come across one photo of a, a couple wearing a mask in Juno even had a, a fine if you were caught without it. The police inconsistently enforced. Um, I do know of at least one political gathering in Juneau that where the police broke it up. James Wickersham, who had been and would be again Alaska's representative to the um, House of Representatives, non-voting representative, he talked about being in one of these meetings in Juneau in 1918 the cops coming in, breaking it up, making them all separate. And he wrote about how happy he was. He had obviously felt some sort of pressure, social peer pressure. He was, you know, the candidate. He was a politician. He felt a need to be part of the proceedings. But he learned that a friend, a newspaper man in Ketchikan, had just died from the Spanish flu. And when he got home, he wrote in his diary about... I am afraid from the Spanish influenza yet, exclamation marks. He was just relieved that the police had taken care of it for him and busted up this meeting and forced everyone to leave. 
it's kind of crazy how you know there's about there's been about a hundred years of time between this other pandemic and the one we're kind of dealing with now but it seems like there are a bit of like some parallels between the way people are reacting there are so many parallels um i mentioned the steamers if you know they had cases on board they weren't allowed to uh, dock and unload and you hear from businesses i just read an article today about um shipping trucking companies complaining about canadian vaccine mandates you know and the difficulties of driving through canada to alaska then steamers said that the governor's policies and restrictions on travel were going to put the steamers out of business and that they would just choose not to come to alaska they would just travel the you know the rest of the west coast sometimes people try and act like people in the past would unify better than people today yeah that you know like wartime brought us together ignoring the fact that we had drafts and draft dodgers and black markets that we all came together for polio or smallpox or Spanish influenza. The reality is much more complicated and much more similar to what you would know from life now. One of my greatest historical lessons is that people have changed precious little, especially over a time as relatively small in a historical sense as a century. People are still motivated by the same things, fear, uh, desire for safety, desire for money, desire for sex, desire for entertainment, that these sort of motivations haven't changed. So therefore, people have, I mean, not just in their core, but to a large extent of their actions, what they want, what they buy, what they are willing to do, what they are willing to accept out of restrictions in society, that hasn't changed that much. Just some of the trappings, you know, streaming music instead of phonographs yeah you know i think i guess the way people kind of communicate with each other and the way information spreads has changed but it kind of sounds like you know people's values um maybe haven't changed as much there was you know a lot of talk of coming together of greater good but when push came to shove many people Perhaps most people chose for themselves what they wanted to do, what they felt like they could, should, could get away with. Do you know how people were treated for this kind of influenza and if the treatments were effective and accessible? Um, there wasn't really a great way to treat the influenza at the time. The best treatment was convalescence, lay down, don't go running around, give your chance, give your body a chance to you know, recover, to rest and not expend energy and let the body spend all of its energy on getting better um, and taking aspirin. There were no vaccines. There were no you know, antibiotics for influenza at this time. Um, there were innumerable quack remedies. There were all these sort of pentant drugs that were sold across the counter. They had all sort of... Uh, you know, expectorants that would maybe feel you, you know, make you feel somewhat better in the brief. Um, people thought drinking would help. Um, quinine, which had been used successfully to treat malaria, was considered something of a wonder drug, therefore, that it had actually beaten this seemingly undefeatable scourge that was malaria. People were... Um, using up all the stocks of quinine around the country and around the world. But this is after in America, after the Pure Food and Drug Act, but you're still dealing with a lot of drugs that are having adulterants. Um, FDA agents were constantly capturing drugs that did not have the ingredients they said they included, that did not meet the claims they said they could accomplish in people. And these are some of the drugs that are available, uh, Dover's health powders, things that maybe would have a touch of morphine or cocaine in it. 
things that would, you know, momentarily make you feel as if you were better. It would give you more energy for obvious reasons. Yeah, I could imagine. Make the pain slightly go away for a moment. So you would think you were getting better, but you weren't. Other things people took was cod liver oil. Ew. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they would take it with like lime and soda sort of potions. That's so god awful. <laughs> Lots of things that would be, um, you know, extracts and smells that would be considered pure or cleansing. Um, pine, menthol, pine balsam, eucalyptus, sort of things you might find like cough drops labeled with today. It's the same sort of appeal back then. People would look for cough syrups or expectorants that were labeled as pine or menthol or eucalyptus. That was very common back then. Uh, gargling, lots of throat gargling, using salt or various other things. That probably didn't hurt too bad, as long as you didn't swallow. My next question was actually about some of these quack medicines, but you answered it. You know, one of the things that stood out to me the most in that article that you wrote was the the pink pills for pale people. Um, that really made me giggle. So I would love to know, can you tell me all about that? The pink pills for pale people. That was a very big deal at the time, a well-known thing. Like it was the type of thing where people could make jokes about pink pills and, you know, light little pills and people would get what you were referring to. Um, they were literally little pink pills and the recipe changed over time, depending upon you know the power of the FDA and the status of um, pure food legislation in America at the time. By the end, it was mostly sugar, I believe. That was the pink, was pink sugar. One of just many patent remedies that just sort of successfully marketed themselves. People were very... How can I put this? They were as susceptible to claims of quick cures as they are today. Everybody wanted the easy solution. Because, of course, I'd rather have an easy solution than a hard one. So people, oddly enough, trusted these claims. It would just be an ad in the newspaper at the time. I mean, this is before people in Alaska then wouldn't have had radio. They just would have had gossip and magazine and newspaper ads. And pink pills were, not only did they promise a quick cure, they promised a quick cure for everything. Anemia, um, like many pills of the day, they, they claim to solve um, female weakness, as a direct quote. But you should be suspicious. They said they cured everything from rickets to eczema to headaches. If you had a bad back, it could take care of that. If you had a bad complexion, it could take care of that, which that's insane. If you were partially paralyzed, it could cure that. You know, and it people took them for the for the flu. Both more normal versions and the Spanish influenza deadlier variant. And it it did in most cases, nothing to harm them. People wasted their money. If they were unlucky, maybe there were adulterants in there that made them sicker. You know, one of the things that, I mean, we both know, throughout the COVID pandemic, we've seen all these different treatments that aren't approved by the FDA that are being promoted as effective treatments, stuff like, what's it called, like ivermectin, like the horse dewormer. Um, so... Why do you think people gravitate towards alternative medicines that have been proven medically unsound? And why do you think people keep pushing them during public health crises? Do you think it's just, um, you know, this need and this want for a quick fix? It's a, it's a need for safety combined with that desire for a quick fix. And um, then and now, pink pills or ivermectin, a misplaced trust in the wrong of the you know, supposed authorities. I mean, it, it sounds great if you could cure what has been a global pandemic with a tube of horse paste. I agree. Um, if that was true, yeah, we would all be buying it. 
but reality unfortunately is as always far more complicated and difficult if in 1918 pink pills had actually cured anything it would have been you know the biggest thing ever it would be coke and pepsi and chocolate and coffee combined it would be the dominant market force the dominant product of all time yeah you know i guess um if a cure-all was real, you think that um, everybody would be hopping all over it, huh? That is always the fun thing with these. It's always the, um, well, you were the exception. You took it wrong. Um, I know of someone who did work. My favorite are all the hair tonics. This isn't more of a tangent, but the constant, obviously everybody wanted hair tonics back then. The greatest fear is losing your hair sometimes, um, apart from death. None of these work, but everybody was taking them and tricking themselves that, it, you know, maybe it's having some effect. Maybe if I keep using it forever, maybe if I switch to a different brand. Yeah, it really sounds like, you know, desperation. Yeah, it's it's fear. It's a lack of information. Uh, when you get to a point when you don't know who to trust and you latch onto something. I mean, from that perspective, it's understandable. Absolutely. That's something that I've thought about a lot um, throughout the pandemic, because um, very often I find myself getting really frustrated with people that don't really seem to have all the information about what's going on about the pandemic. And, you know, like I find myself getting frustrated. I'm like, why are people being ignorant? Why are people like doing this, that and the other? And um, you know, when I step back and I think about it, it's really hard to blame the individual when there's so much misinformation, you know? Like, it is very, very easy to fall victim to misinformation. Having to logically think through everything in the world and to be on constant critical awareness, it's exhausting. It does cause fear. It causes anxiety. It is a much calmer way of life to just accept this one thing as true and not evaluated. We'll be right back. Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining ATME, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Quinn's interview with Alaska historian David Reamer. So you mentioned these travel health certificates during the, this time in 1918. So can you tell me more about those? I've never been able to find too much about them. They were just little certificates, little note card sized things that you would get from a doctor. You had to go to a, a doctor and show evidence, you know, hopefully because he was your doctor. You know, most of these towns didn't have many doctors. Some had none at all. So this was even more difficult for smaller towns and villages. And say, you remember when I had the flu last week, give me a card so I can travel, you know, to Seward. Give me a card so I can travel from Anchorage, you know, into the valley. So I can make my way to you know, Valdez or to Fairbanks or wherever. Or to say, like, you know, I've been around in town. You know, I haven't gone anywhere. You know, I haven't been sick and therefore I'm clear. I'm not a danger to anyone. So give me a card so I can travel. And this is obviously rife to abuse. Yeah. But it's also given the minimal infrastructure of 1918, 1919 Alaska, this is really the best that was possible. There wasn't even a health commission at that time. There was no public health officers. There were doctors he could, you know, hopefully pay for and send out there, but it wasn't like a system he could rely on to enforce this. Um, he was also out of money. They, by the middle of November 1918, the territory is out of money. 
they'd spent all of their discretionary money that they could have spent on the healthcare crisis. Uh, just the sheer cost of caring for orphans, for sending provisions to plague-stricken towns, to the surprisingly expensive burials. It cost a lot in some of the more frozen places to get a steam engine over uh, a plot and dig it up. Sure, yeah, that sounds that sounds difficult. <laughs> That is very, very difficult, and that was, you know, an expert type of thing. In Anchorage, they just didn't have burials. Was there not enough space? Could they not? Oh, there was plenty of space. They already had the um, the current cemetery set apart, set aside. But you know, nineteen eighteen, that whole section had tons of land. But um, I mean, it didn't help. Like the undertakers were getting sick. One of the undertakers is one of the people who died in Anchorage. But um, they, funerals were banned, and they just sort of let them stack up. Um, in the valley, Sisidna, they literally stored them in a shed, the bodies of the natives from the village. You know, it was winter. Winter had come. So they just stored them in the shed until they could get enough people, enough manpower in some places. That is really kind of... Um... That's kind of, I mean, that's really awful. It's really kind of sickening. They finally had a mass funeral for the Anchorage uh, victims in December 15th, I believe. A sort of mixed, uh, it was held at the Presbyterian Church, but it was uh, a mixed faith ceremony. There are stories, um, there's one Atna account that's always haunted me that, um, this one person during the Spanish influenza was traveling in the valley and was going village to village and found just he would enter a village and everyone would be laid low except maybe a single crying child. Oh my God. Like everybody would be sick or dying, that the fires would be would have died, there would be no smoke, there would be no activity. Just these, you know dying or dead bodies in the little homes. Yeah, that's extremely haunting. Like when you, what you were saying about, you know, all the people that helped put on like funerals, they were getting sick too. I mean, that's exactly what's happening today. You know, we have all kind like we have all kinds of shortages, um, not just on people that work in funeral homes, but like, um, you know, like even like Starbucks is running out of stuff. And you have to think, this is in 1918. Things had to get here by steamer or, well, they weren't really coming over land through Canada back then very much. But shortages were a fact of life then. This is the time when you might see, not might, but you saw advertisement for things that had just arrived. Imagine the stores now. Some of them would love the ability to advertise what they actually have. Um, you couldn't plan a sale in 1918 Anchorage, you had to sell what actually showed up. If it didn't make it onto the steamer, if the steamer couldn't make it because of early winter, you simply didn't have the items in your store. So you add on to that the fraying of this weekly built infrastructure. If a shopkeeper's out sick, if the undertaker's out, if a teacher is out, if you have to close the schools, society can threaten to fall apart very quickly. And um, I mentioned the lack of funding. Thomas Riggs actually applied to Congress. He asked for $200,000 in aid. There was a whole Senate resolution that was initiated, got cut to 100,000 and then just denied. It was one of those moments when the lack of a, a delegate with a vote really harmed Alaska which we wouldn't have until statehood. Um, there was a senator from Kentucky, I believe, who said, asked, like, how many people are even in Alaska? And then, like, laughing it off, like, I've got more people than that, that in Louisville or whatever. Real bold coming from someone from Kentucky. Yes. In the aftermath of this 1918 flu, Alaska dealt with other widespread diseases like you talked about, like uh, 
diphtheria, I think during the serum run, if I think that's correct, I might not be, and like polio. So how did Alaskans respond to other de- diseases that affected the state? A little better. Again, they weren't ready to deal with anything like this. Um, I mean, they'd been perfectly fine ignoring what had been wave after wave of decimating plague upon the Alaska native populations. But the Spanish flu was so contagious, it crossed over from you know, socially and legally separated populations in Alaska. So obviously, therefore, it became a more interesting issue for the government. So you start seeing after the Spanish flu ends, uh, more money and care put into a public health system. So when you start seeing smallpox and scarlet fever pop up, you start seeing more willingness to shut down towns, to close the schools, to put on strict quarantines, even arrest people for breaking quarantines to a certain extent. Um, there are examples where there was sort of a disparate policy for white settlers versus Alaska natives. You would see examples of, I know of at least one example in Sitka where there was a disease outbreak and they decided just to quarantine the Alaska native population because they thought that's where all the disease was. During the Spanish flu, while Anchorage was under quarantine, we of course were the base for the Alaska Railroad, which was under construction, which by that way, by that time was making its way into the valleys. And that was allowed to go on at full speed and try and get as much construction in as they could before winter just made it too difficult. And every one of these accounts, these people are just falling down at the edge of the you know construction. The workers, they hit the villages and then suddenly the villages are being wiped out from disease. Um, it's this constant easy observation Railroad arrives, Alaska Natives died in mass. Uh, there was a 1916 outbreak that just coursed through the local Denina around Anchorage. Uh, when it hits Susitna, everyone dies. It hits Talkeetna, the locals die. Chickaloon, the Atna die. So, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing the questions is, you know, Given Alaska's geographic location not only being isolated from the lower 48, but also a lot of these small towns and villages, they're really far away from major healthcare resources and cities. And a lot, I mean, even today, a lot of villages don't, like there's not, there's not healthcare facilities or doctors in every single village. So do you think that this makes Alaskan communities especially vulnerable to public health crises? Oh, very vulnerable. Um, some of those earlier ones, you would, they would have to bring people into Anchorage, and sometimes Anchorage people weren't delighted with the idea of bringing your you know, more distant scarlet fever, smallpox uh, victims into town <laughs> to look at it from an Anchorage perspective. But that's the risk of just underfunded, undersupported public health. Yeah, I guess it's very unfortunate how, you know, all these people are suffering because there isn't a better system in place to make sure that people have the health care that they need. It's quite frankly depressing to study this, um, the history of disease in Alaska, that there weren't necessarily always resources to combat it on hand. I mentioned the territory was essentially broke during the Spanish influence of the governor. Thomas Riggs is allowing spending to continue without any promise of being paid. He's having to authorize spending that ultimately is tied to his personal credit. He was going to be on personal account for all of these debts, for aid to the Seward Peninsula, to send doctors around, to pay for burials, to pay for food. Um, thankfully, the territorial legislature the next year does authorize the spending, but he went into personal, he risked personal debt for answering this. That's how weak the system was at that time, that he had to do that. Wow. So, you know, 
one of the things that I'm kind of thinking about right now is how can we learn, like, what can we learn looking back on how our state has dealt with disease? That if there is enough, um, the thing with policies, it always comes down to enforcement. Are you willing to, you know, put stick to it? When Anchorage had a scarlet fever outbreak in 1936, um, scarlet fever primarily affected children. It was just this great fear at that time. It was a public hysteria. But there was one man who just kept breaking quarantine. He had been exposed in Anchorage. And he knew he had been exposed, people who knew he had been exposed, but he just kept leaving this lodging house he was in. He was fined thousands of dollars and sentenced to jail. Is there support for policies like that? Is there support for that type of enforcement, both publicly, socially, and within the local government? But at the same time, you see that in Alaska in the 20s and 30s into the 50s, some of these have really, some of these quarantines, some of these shutdowns have managed to just end outbreaks. Yeah. Well, that's what they're meant to do, huh? <laughs> yeah, you see this with um, with smallpox. They just stops them. Scarlet fever, you see outbreaks just end, thankfully, get choked off. Uh, thanks to, you know, the containing of the spreading. Um, thanks to medical breakthroughs. Thanks to public health promotion. Things like polio can become, you know, essentially disappear from American life. And I sometimes see people mention, like, as I said earlier, why couldn't we come together as they did in the wartime? Which is a little silly if you look at the reality of it. And people say, why couldn't we come together as they did in polio times? Polio was a great scourge, um, paralyzing and killing children primarily. And awful as polio was, it was a fraction as many people died as they do from the coronavirus. Um, Alaska's worst year was 1954. There had been 365 cases of polio in Alaska, which was more than there had been like, you know, all the years combined as far as documentation went. 189 of those had some form of paralysis, 10 died. Three had died the previous year from polio. But we then see this massive campaign. You see children lined up in Alaska as elsewhere to get the shot um, or to get the sugar cube in later versions of the vaccine, the polio vaccine. And there was hesitancy about the polio vaccine then. There had been a uh, bad batch of vaccine, but eventually just the sheer public weight of support of this crushed it and made what had been just just literally made parents shiver, just shake with fear knowing their children could be struck at any moment. As far as the parents knew, it was just this mysterious thing that could just pop up, could pop up anywhere at any time. Yeah, and that's scary. I mean, I know for myself, the thing that I struggle with the most throughout the pan, this, I mean, this current pandemic is the, you know, the uncertainty of what's gonna happen. These parents are sending their children off to school not knowing, they're constantly thinking about this. Um, parents were known to shut down on their own. Uh, during scarlet fever, people would have these like sort of ready-made signs that they would stick out in their yard, stay away from us. So the 1918 pandemic only lasted like a year, year and a half. And we're going on to our third year of COVID. So I gotta know, how did the Spanish, like how did the Spanish flu end? Well, essentially, essentially burns itself out. Um, it does pop up in waves. Um, 1918, November 1918 was the peak for Alaska, but you see it come and go through Alaska towns for the next year or two. Uh, Bristol Bay in the summer of 1919 is hit very hard. It makes its way through the canneries. There's all these orphans. It's incredibly sad. 
um, you see towns that lift their sanctions only to then get crushed again with it. Um, influenza in early 1919. Um, the governor is just watching this from afar and just noting this down every day in his diary. Like, they lifted. They don't have any doctors. I hope everything goes well. And then two weeks later going, well, they now have 20 cases. Things look terrible. Let's see. Skagway was one of those. February 21st, 1919, he wrote... Skagway today partially lifted their Spanish, their influenza quarantine. Thank heaven there is no flu known in the territory. And then a month later, March 25th, he wrote, more influenza. This time it is at Skagway. On the 23rd, it broke out with 40 cases yesterday, 50 cases in one death. The only doctor in town is down with it. So you get these popping back and forth, these waves. And it never really disappears. It combines, it mutates, and you see flu outbreaks over the, you know, the next century that can be linked back to the 1918 virus. You sort of see a lineage. 1957, there's a huge flu outbreak. 1968 through 2009, swine flu. You're seeing the evolved children of the Spanish influenzas still hanging around. Well, I know that's a pretty popular theory about what's going to happen with COVID is that like, I mean, some people that I've talked to, like they think that COVID is going to do a similar thing, that it's going to become something that kind of doesn't go away and that mutates and changes over time. Do you think that, is that, am I kind of following right? Lots of people think that, um, if history has taught me anything is to be wary of futurists, of people who think they can predict the future. And unfortunately the future could be so much worse or so much better. Yeah. And to be wary of the more sure someone is, the more, the less I trust them as far as predicting the future. I have to agree. Those people always seem to be wrong. Why do you think this current pandemic is lasting so much longer than this one did 100 years ago? Um, things are much more connected now. It's easier to transmit. As a, The globe is better connected. We are physically more connected than we were back then. Transmission is so much easier. The inconsistent response to it is giving it room to you know, to mutate and to develop over and over into different strains. Um, 1918, 1919, you would see it just burn through communities in a way you, you know, it's less common now. You, you know, see some people restricting their, their outings or vaccinating or wearing masks versus those who do not. Just to kind of wrap up, what we've talked about today. In all of your research on the 1918 pandemic, how has it changed how you understand and respond to the COVID-19 pandemic? Uh, fear. <laughs> Studying the Spanish influenza and seeing just death everywhere and people acting despite of being surrounded by stacked bodies, sometimes literally bodies being stacked. It's very worrying. It, um, sometimes studying history can be very depressing in that way. It can undermine your faith in society. Oh, yeah. The more you learn about something, sometimes that is, uh, uh, you know how it is. The more you get to know someone, the more you either love them or the more you despise them. And history is like that in that hot and cold way. I love aspects more than I ever thought I would, and I grow more cynical at the same time which it's actually why um i like you know most historians kind of tend to specialize in some topic and some time period and while i generally focus on alaska i wildly bounce around in my topics from frankly ludicrous little subjects to dour things like housing discrimination and spanish influenza because I find that need to 
spend my time and energy researching things that don't actively depress me. Yeah, I, you know, this is a kind of different, but I agree. One of the things that I've had a hard time with in journalism school is I've been like, wow, some of this news biz is kind of, kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. Histories can be that way, yes. Yeah, I'm like, oh my God, this is really not as fun as I thought it would be. But um, yeah, geez. So I, I serve that and in the minimal way that I'm read or people read like what I write, I'm spreading different aspects of history at the same time. The history doesn't have to be entirely dour. Hopefully teaching myself that same lesson. I've often thought that I kind of have this skill of like trying to research history and finding the worst bits. So I've forced myself to look for happy stories or just odd little entertaining stories. Well, David, I really feel like I learned a lot from our conversation today. I'm really excited about it and I really appreciate your time. No problem. This was fun. That was At Me senior producer Quinn White speaking with Alaska historian David Reamer. You've been listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengoss with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska, we would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage for the Healthy Communities Funding Program. The opinions, findings, and conclusions or recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United Way of Anchorage or the Municipality of Anchorage, Anchorage Health Department. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help us keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like AtMe. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Ada Bjorkman. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.